Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. So glad that you're with us at Hope Church as we continue our series on Jesus. You know, I mean, it's always going to be on Jesus. This is a series in the Gospels (laughs) where we're asking maybe some more specific questions about what is taught about Jesus in these Gospels, specifically Matthew 8 and 9. And we're, we're winding it down, and um, I, I don't want to make it sound like it's, it's coming down this way. We're winding it down in a number of weeks, but, God, I mean, you just got to increase the intensity as we think again about this, this theme. If you read through the people that write about Matthew, they talk about this series of chapters in these cycles, that Jesus goes through these cycles of healings, these cycles of exorcisms, and these cycles of teaching on discipleship. And they happen three times. And we're kind of coming to the end of this third cycle where he has emphasized with his action and with his teaching both his authority, that Jesus is God. He's a man and God, if you're just encountering these gospels, these eyewitness accounts of his life, you're encountering people who just tell you what he did, tell you what he said. And it's clear from what he did, especially within a Jewish mindset, but it's clear from what he did that he is God. He has the authority of God and that 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 deity is married to a, a tenderness, a love that I don't think any of us would really see coming. I don't know that we usually associate power with that kind of condescension, that kind of warmth, that kind of tenderness. You're going to see it again today, and I I want you to see it as we kind of come to the the crescendo, as we think again about how all this comes together in Christ in, in the way that He loves you. We talked about what he's done. We talked about some of the things that he's done in these cycles, and you'll see it again today. Some of the same wording even is used. But I want to emphasize how he goes about doing what he does so that you can understand a little bit more his love. See, I I, I don't, when I talk about Jesus and I talk about Jesus' love, I, I don't want to play into a stereotype that people might have about Christianity. People might think that Christianity is, is soft, that what we're talking about and what we're believing is naive. I don't know if you read people's stories of like growing up within maybe a more conservative uh, background socially, and that often involves some kind of Protestantism. And so they kind of had that ringing, and then they go to college, or you know, they get their first job, or move to the city, or whatever. And then you know, the blinders come off. They, they see the broader world. They understand the, the severity of the suffering that's out there. And they say, okay, how can I believe anymore? I know too much to believe anymore. Well, I don't really buy that. If you read the Bible, you're going to find in the Bible stories that are aware of a severity of suffering that I don't, I mean, I certainly hope none of you have experienced the story today reflects on two themes that capture just how, how scary like Halloween tries to be. I don't know if you're excited about Halloween or not. I mean, kids are excited about costume and candy. I'm not thrilled about it. It's mostly just neutral. It doesn't affect my life, really. I'm not an adult who does costumes. No judgment, you know, if that's your thing. Uh, maybe judgment a little bit. I apologize for that. But um, I'm not an adult costume guy. 
I am a watcher of like TV though, and I, I hate all the scary movie commercials because you can't watch anything with your kids without having them like ready, you know, like shut your eyes, you know, oh gosh, because they can't unsee that, and then I don't sleep if they don't sleep. So <laughs> I don't like that. Um, but again, what biblically the 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 severity that's there does go beyond some of these sort of collective nightmares that we have, that we express with these scary movies. I mean, if you think about a witch, I mean, you can think about it with like pointy hats and funny, you can think of it as Hermione Granger or, you know, whatever, but, but a witch, really, somebody who sold themselves to the enemy. And a witch is a woman who has as her enemy children. They bring about infertility and the death of, of children. That's what historically witches have done or pursued. That's dark. But that's not darker than the story that we have today. A story that reflects both dead children and decades-long infertility. And yet Jesus is the one who enters into that darkness. Right, I, I'm trying to show you that that Jesus is not somebody who only can exist if you've had a nice middle class life. Jesus is somebody who very well understands the darkness of the world and enters into it. Let's read it together. It says in Matthew chapter nine. While he was saying these things to him, behold, a ruler comes and came in and knelt before Jesus, saying, "My daughter has just died." But come and lay your hand on her, and, and she'll live. And Jesus rises up, and he follows him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Jesus continues to the ruler's house, and when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, and he said, go away, the girl is not dead, but sleeping, and they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. This is a fun story. This is a happy story. It's a story about dark things that become light, that become healed, that become happy. But it's a story about people. And if I just teach you this story, I don't know that you're going to get it. See, the Bible gives us teaching. It gives us places where people just speak things that are true. You read Romans, and it's a little much. I love it. I love it. Read it. Memorize it. It'll return again and again and again, and the Holy Spirit can make it known to you. But I'm just saying, like, sometimes there's teaching, but sometimes there's stories, and stories are a little easier to step into as a person. The reason that the gospel writers have given us not just stories, but these stories is that they want us to enter into these stories. If you're going to enter into this story, then you have to be aware of some of the need that they have, not just that they have, but that you have. The people in this story had the, the pleasure the wild, terrible pleasure of actually encountering Christ. But the way that he set things up, the word that you're reading today is that same encounter. 
I want you to, to take a moment as, as we're talking about these things and thinking, to think about the need that you need him to encounter. The darkness in your world that you need him to light up. Some of you are already believers. You've experienced the kind of capital L light up of coming to know Christ, but you still got pain. You still got a ton of, of darkness that you've chosen or that's just on you. Think about that and enter into this story kind of through that. See their need, feel your need. Some of you, again, are just exploring Christianity, and maybe for you this is going to have to be kind of more universal, and you're just kind of trying to explore, is this the Jesus that I think that I actually do believe in? Is this the Jesus that I, that I do want? Not always the same question. These are people, this, this lady with the discharge, this child who has died, these are people in desperate need. They're women. I think it's important for us to remember that this culture wasn't, um, you know, super egalitarian, like women weren't always seen as, as valuable as men. It's important for you to see that so that you can see Jesus combating that, that he does have this incredible compassion for, love of, speaking to, thinking about women as well as men. They, they, they're women, but, but the desperate need that these two women had is an uncleanness, a separateness. And I want to hedge that a bit. I want to explain that a bit. If you're new to the Bible, there's an Old Testament and a New, and they're kind of subdivided by when Jesus comes. His, his birth is what starts Matthew. That's what starts the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you have the story of God interacting with the people full stop, but specifically through this group of people that he, he named the, the Israelites that came through Jacob, 12 tribes, Abraham, you've heard of this group, this is the Jews. This is the people that he is going to then express himself to the world through. And he gives them laws that are cleanliness laws, laws that help to describe holiness, describe who God is, and then to describe everything else. They're laws that are helpful in understanding what is fallen about the world. You go drive through the canyons and look at the aspens, they're beautiful. In that moment, you're in heaven. You come back down the mountain... You come into the haze, the fog, the children's hospitals. What about this world is right? What about this world is wrong? God expresses that through these laws about cleanliness, and they kind of run through places we agree and maybe places that are a little more challenging to a modern sensibility. But, but these two women were both women who are now unclean. They are now separated it says in Leviticus, one of those Old Testament books that describes God's law, when a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. And whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. So this woman that goes and touches Jesus that has been bleeding for 12 years, verse 25 of Leviticus 15, if a woman has a discharge of blood for many days... Not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue to be unclean. She continues in uncleanness, as in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Now, I'm not excited to talk about this. I feel uncomfortable talking about this. I'm a guy. I'm a guy in front of a group of people on a Sunday morning. It seems weird, but it's Bible. And actually, as we'll go a little further, if you'll trust me, it does connect further to some of the other stuff I want to bring up. I think the Bible on purpose does this, Part of, apart from the fact that it's what actually happened, so they're just telling you the story. 
It has meaning. You know, we talk about witches. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If you know the beginning of Scripture, God makes Adam and Eve, but He doesn't make them sinful. He makes them His image bearers. They love each other and they love Him. And the serpent comes along and He tempts them. Because they fall, a curse comes. The curse on the man, but also the curse on the woman, that He will greatly increase her pain and childbearing. And we see that. See that a lot. I mean, you just sit anywhere in Hope Church, you're going to hear wiggles and squeals. There's babies constantly, and there's babies coming constantly. I mean, we're always trying to figure out what to do to plug holes because somebody just had a kid, and my God, I don't know when they're coming back. You know, it's just pregnancy is constant. But of course, that is, it comes with all of this anxiety. We pray with these people, these families, as they go through these pregnancies because nothing's for sure. Certainly, nothing's easy. And when the Bible talks about the menstruation stuff, it's talking about, it's, it's picking up on this theme that runs throughout the Old Testament of uncleanness tied to the concept of death. I don't, I don't know what would have been the system or the rhythm of, of humanity if we hadn't fallen. I know what it is now, though, and I know that in the Old Testament, emissions, bodily emissions, male or female, there was an uncleanness to it. There's an uncleanness to these leprosy, these skin diseases that are evidence of, of death, of rottenness. There was uncleanness that came with mold. That's part of why the Jews are always washing their hands and doing these cleanliness rituals that actually help pre-germ theory. These uncleanness lead to, they, they are part of, they're derivative from, they're downstream, upstream of death. And we see that for sure with this next person. I mean, obviously, this lady is, is separated. You can imagine what it would be like to be this lady who is considered unclean because of this situation that she's in. But, oh my gosh, I mean, this, this poor little girl who has died is also unclean, separated from the people. I, I hope that you can feel some level of empathy for the poor woman with this condition I mean, she's not allowed to be around people. The stuff she touches becomes unclean. So whether she does or doesn't, imagine how many people are going to want to be around her. Lonely existence, separated existence, painful existence. But this poor child also is dead. And there's a the sympathy that we automatically feel with the parents, and there's a, there's a tragedy that goes on here. But understand that she's also unclean. There's no poetry to death. Death stinks. Both of these are unclean. Both of these are desperate. And both of these come to Jesus. And this is what's happening in the story. It's sandwiched together. You can't pull these things apart. They both come to Jesus. You have this one woman who in desperation pushes her way through the crowd with this idea, this hope that maybe she could just touch the fringe of his garment. Maybe she could just grab one of those tassels just as he walks by. If she could just touch the, then she would be healed. You have this dad that's coming and dropping before Jesus and praying to him, asking him, will he please come, beseeching this, this Jesus to come and just lay hands on his dead daughter. Desperate need, not necessarily great theology. Neither of these two people are, are understanding exactly who Jesus is. They just understand that Jesus... 
They just understand that they need, that there's some solution to Jesus. So the desperation and their aim, Jesus, drives them, even though they don't understand necessarily. It's Jesus that turns and corrects this woman by telling her, it's not by touching a magic garment. Jesus turns and tells her, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. He's, he's correcting to some degree. But see that in their desperation, in their need, both coming to Jesus, they also both get what they want. The woman does. She has this kind of upside down understanding, but, but she understands Jesus and she gets close and she touches him. And he turns and he sees her and he says, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. It says in verse 25, Jesus pushes through the crowd. He does lay hands on this little girl. He, he takes her by the hand, just like the ruler dad asked for. And the girl rises up. The uncleanness goes away. She's given back to her parents. They give her some food. She's, she's back. That's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus walks into. That's what he takes. And he puts from death to life. Now, we've said that. We've said that in this series. In fact, when he says to the girl, uh, to the woman, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well, that's almost word for word what he says to the guy that was the cripple on the mat. And he says, take heart, son. This is the same sort of thing. It's happening again. But, but you have to understand that he is not just doing this. It's not just omnipotence that's just doing whatever it wants, that there is a way in which he's doing this. And if you will see that way, you will understand a little bit more his love. Because it says in Matthew 8, we've, we've talked about this, but only briefly because there's so much to go over here, but we see it in this passage. It says, that evening they brought to him, meaning Jesus, many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word. He healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. The way in which Jesus heals, it's not just a word to a storm that makes it calm. When he touches this uncleanness, it's not just the clean making the unclean clean. The way that he's touching these things that by touch make everything else unclean, the way that he's healing has told us. Matthew is telling us. The cross hasn't happened yet, but Matthew's alluding to it. He's telling us what Isaiah said hundreds of years before about this Christ, about the way in which this suffering servant would bring about the healing of the people. That he takes this uncleanness on himself. Now, this passage has an echo. There's another place in Scripture that very closely follows this passage. And it also shows us something that, that I think makes a little bit more clear what this God has come to do. The, the prophet Ezekiel. Now, I don't know how much you read of the major prophets, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, but, but I pray that you would and would more. I mean, it takes a minute maybe, but if you'll get into it, your hair gets blown back on like a daily basis by the beauty, severity, the majesty of what God has taught through these people, and especially if you understand enough New Testament to understand how what they said was really fulfilled through Jesus. But Ezekiel has all kinds of crazy stuff that happens in his life. He's a priest that's under in, in Jerusalem and then is taken. So that, that people I told you about, the Jewish people that are this, this kingdom that God's going to tell the world about himself through, they get put into this place, this kingdom, this promised land, and yet 
because of their disobedience, because of their wayward hearts, because of their idolatry, because they're like us, they, they break. It's no longer one kingdom, it becomes two kingdoms. The northern kingdom seems to be more wicked than the southern, and over time, the northern kingdom gets taken away, it gets conquered, it gets destroyed. The southern kingdom lasts a little longer, but soon Babylon comes and destroys the southern kingdom. God said that would happen. He said, you're my people, you're in this promised land. You're not my people, you're going to not be in the promised land. And they did. They went after these idols, and generation after generation, eventually God allows these other countries to come in and just gobble them up. Ezekiel is one of the first uh, exile groups to go from the southern kingdom into Babylon, into exile. And God gives him these visions, these visions of the glory of God leaving the temple. By the end of the book, if you're willing to go through, you know, 40 chapters, the glory of God returning. And right in the middle, we have this prophecy, this, this word of the Lord to the people interpreting what's happening to them. It says in verse 16 of Isaiah, uh, I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36, the word of the Lord came to me, meaning Ezekiel, and the Lord says to Ezekiel, and every time he talks to Ezekiel, he calls him son of man. He says, son of man. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them across the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. I, again, minstrel. You know, I, I don't like talking about that, but it's coming up. There's an uncleanness aspect to it that we're seeing in the law. Then Jesus, I'm sorry, God the Father through Ezekiel is showing the people that what they were doing was embracing an uncleanness as though they were. Now, do what I, I tried to help us to do earlier in this series, where when you see somebody that has a physical malady, don't go one-to-one -one with the sin in that person's life. Job taught us better. Jesus taught us better. Yes, all of this sin, all of this death, and therefore all of this uncleanness does go back to sin. But you can't say one-to-one, -one, that person was a sinner, therefore that person endured this physical difficulty. That's what we always try to do. You ever hear about somebody going through something awful? If you're talking to them, you may not do it, but you're talking to your friend who also knows the story, you're trying to do like a diagnostic because you want to figure out how to make sure that doesn't happen to you. Oh, they lived in that part of town. Mm. Oh, they were hanging out with that crowd. Well, <laughs> oh, they were drinking Diet Coke. Well, yeah, I can see then how they got, you know, whatever. You, you try to diagnose, you want to reverse engineer it so that you can somehow make yourself cleaner, better, not you. The Bible is real and it's about people so that you and I understand that it's about us. Jesus teaches the exact same thing. There are some people that come up to him and they make sort of this argument from the existence of evil moment. How could God allow the mixing of the blood of these people with this sacrifice? How, how could God allow this tower to fall on and kill this 18 people in Siloam? And Jesus says to them, do you think the tower fell on them because they're more wicked? Do you really think that there was something they did in their life that was so much greater than what you do on a daily basis that God was like, just put them in front of a tower? 
What Jesus says instead is, do you think they're worse? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What he says is, though you may see the cracks and the breaks and the dust coming down of the whole universe falling apart more clearly in somebody else's suffering, somebody else's dead child, somebody else's 12-year illness, we all are guilty. We all are are enduring, embracing, imbibing the sin that causes those things. If you live a blessed life until you die, if you have embraced those things, then you will stand before a holy God and endure His wrath. So so we're not going to let that trip us up. We understand that there's all of this death that's seen in the brokenness of the world, and the individuals through which we see it are not necessarily worse than the rest of us. They're just like the rest of us. They become signposts to the rest of us. And so while Ezekiel is preaching, and he has to talk about this idea that they have embraced this uncleanness, he then is in a vision, or actually is, is taken to this valley And it's full of dry bones. And the Bible says there were many bones and they were very dry. And God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says the right answer. He goes, you know, Lord. (laughs) That's always the right answer. You don't know what he's talking about or what you're supposed to say. You just go, oh, I know you know, Lord. I know you know, Lord. You know, Lord. And so the Lord says... Prophesy to the bones, Ezekiel. Preach to the dead, dry bones. Now, every preacher knows that experience. There's a couple Sundays where you're looking out there and it's a little dry, a little dead. But Ezekiel actually looked out on dead, dry bones. Yeah, he prophesied to the bones, he preached to the bones. Bones! <laughs> And he started to tell them God's word. Light and life came through God's word out. And what happened? The bones begin to rattle. It's a good song there. And they come together. And then sinews start to cover the bone. And then flesh starts to cover the sinew. And then there stand before him this great number of people. And then God tells Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy to the air. Let the wind come in and give them life. And so Ezekiel starts prophesying to the air, and the wind fills them up. And then they stand before him, this great living army, no longer bones, souls, dead, alive. Do you see the one-two punch of Ezekiel? The uncleanness, the impurity, the death brought to life. Why? Why does Ezekiel talk about it? Why did Jesus talk about it through Matthew before the cross? He has to have you understand what's happening when he actually goes to the cross. Oh, man. Ezekiel. The Lord says to Ezekiel, he says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So after the miracle's taking place, he's summing it up for him. He says, Behold, their bones, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We're indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy to Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from my graves, O my people. Do you see? He's saying death to life, death to life, death to life. Sin, sin, separateness, uncleanness. To take heart, my daughter. 
two, raising up, raising them up and handing them back to the parents and saying, feed her. Death to life. That's what he does. That's how this Jesus does things. But, but how does he go about it? How does he actually make this possible? How is this supposed to teach you his love? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You have to understand how he did it. We think about omnipotent God, and when you look at some of these miracles, you think, well, yeah, duh. Like, it's, not, it's nothing for God, who is omnipotent and the maker of the wind and the waves, to stand in front of a storm and say, stop it, and the storm stop. It's nothing for God, who invented corn and invented wheat, to tell bread, break, and then I'm going to have enough for the whole place. And all of a sudden, there's enough for the whole place. It doesn't seem like he's tired after that. But when you talk about him taking our uncleanness, when you talk about Isaiah saying that he bore our illness, he, he bore our diseases... You're talking about something totally different. You imagine like Elon Musk has so much money. You ever go to lunch with him? Let him pay. You think he's going to notice? Get whatever you want. Get appetizers. Like the, He's not going to notice. You think about these strong men. And I know CrossFit is really like strong people now or whatever. But to me, strong men is still like 11 o'clock ESPN 7. And then they're Scandinavian guys. And they're all covered in like the powder for their hands. And they got the giant leather belts and big, big bellies and big, big muscles. And they pick up those giant concrete globes and set them down on stuff. Mm. And you just think about how strong they are. And you think about those big men coming and picking up some tiny little weight. Rachel told me that in the ladies' classes over at uh, Vasa, the, a lot of the weights are by color. They're not by number. <laughs> so she'll be like, oh, I know, she was so strong, she was carrying purple weights. Like, what? <laughs> well, how much are purple weights? I don't know. They're heavier, though, than the blue and the pink. <laughs> wow, okay, well, yeah, purple weights. You imagine, big Scandinavian guy picking up little pink, little pink weights. That's nothing. It's nothing. We imagine Jesus forgiving us. It's just nothing. It's easy. It's nothing. It's nice, but it's nothing. He should do this. He could do this. Of course, he should do this. But that's not how he paid for our sin. He doesn't just write it off. He has to endure it. What this passage says, what the whole of the New Testament, what the whole of the Bible is saying, is that he took our sin upon himself. That he becomes sin. You talk about uncleanness. The Bible is clear that anything, cursed is anything that is hung on a tree. Jesus gets hung on a cross in all of our uncleanness. Not talking about your time of the month uncleanness. I'm talking about your sin uncleanness. All of your adultery. All of your lust. All of your anger. All of your lying. All of your pride. All of your backbiting. All of your judgment. God takes all of that and he places it on Christ. The perfect one, the one who knew no sin, becomes sin. And a holy God looks at a nailed thing, a cursed thing that holds all the sin, past, present, and future of everyone who would ever believe. And he sees him and he crushes him for you. In this story is a ruler and a father who looks at his dead child do you understand that God is a father and a ruler who killed his child 
for you. He doesn't just take away leprosy. He takes on leprosy. He doesn't just take away your sin. He takes on your sin. And he bleeds for it. He takes on that woman's uncleanness, and he bleeds for it. And of course, it's a gospel because that's not where it ends. (laughs) Ezekiel doesn't end there either. God says, I'll take you from the nations. I'll gather you from all the countries. I'll bring you into your own land. I'll sprinkle you clean with water, and and you should be clean from all your uncleanness. All your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in you and give you a heart of flesh. I'll raise you up out of that grave. Yes, Jesus dies on a cross, but then Jesus rises from the grave. He does. Death can't hold him. The story of the gospel is not the story of just your uncleanness or your sin that's behind it. It's not just the story of Christ taking on uncleanness. It's his his love for you to take your uncleanness and to give you life, to take your death and to give you life. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? Listen, some of you have said, I've already received that. I mean, I appreciate it. It stirs me a little bit, but whatever. No, no. You're still drinking that uncleanness. You're still pursuing it every day. You're like these people in the promised land who are still going out and sacrificing to these other idols. You're going after these things that God hates. Don't you want him? Oh, come to him. Come to him. We're going to do the Lord's Supper here in just a second. Why are we doing the Lord's Supper again? Because as often as you do it, you remember the cleansing, the love that he has for you. What motivates us to live this different life? It is that that love that would do this for us. Next week, we're going to talk more about those mechanics. But just understand that today, Jesus got his hand out to you. Whatever you're doing, he's got his hand out to you and saying, Take heart, son, daughter. Your faith can make you well. You just got to reach out.